For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, welcome back in, everybody. It is the Believe in Patriots podcast right here on the Believe Podcast Network. Patriots lose, again, a common theme lately. Pat's now 2-5, and 24-21 loss to the Bills. I'm going to be joined here momentarily by former Patriots quarterback, former Bills quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, CFL Hall of Famer, Doug Flutie. You can follow me on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. You can follow Doug at Doug Flutie. Aaron Wells is our producer as well. The podcast is always brought to you by our friends at Bet Online. Bet Online is the only place online where you should be placing your NFL bets. Although I should just stop betting, apparently, because I told you to take Detroit last week and they got beat by 20 by Indy. So I guess gambling, not my forte, but it's fun. So I'm going to keep doing it. So uh, from team and coaching props, betonline.ag is where you need to go. BetOnline.ag. All right, Aaron, to the podcast. What you're about to hear is a presentation of the Believe in Patriots podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. All the news, opinions, and insights on your six-time Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. Now it's your host, me, Brady Farkas, and Heisman Trophy winner, CFL Hall of Famer, and former Patriots quarterback, Doug Flutie. All right, welcome back in. Believe in Patriots podcast again right here on the Believe Podcast Network. And, yeah, the Patriots are 2-5. and five. Everybody is thrilled to see them be horrendous except for us. And right now they have been horrendous. So uh, Doug Flutie is with us again now. So, Doug, I'm going to ask you this. I hope you're not a guy who, when a relationship gets tough, you just want to run. Don't break up with the podcast because the Patriots aren't playing well. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no way. Uh, we got a team going here. We're going to stick with this thick and thin. It's oh. just frustrating to see the Patriots lose. We're just not used to it. We're not used to seeing them lose in ways that they did this weekend where they were in a position to win and let it slip away. Um, it's just it's a little bit frustrating right now. You know, there's no such thing in moral as moral victories. I understand the players don't want to hear it, but I can at least take some solace in the fact that they played better, right? They ran for nearly 200 yards. Cam played better. They did some play action, some things we asked them to do. It didn't end up working out, but they did play better, and I have to at least feel good about that. I agree. I agree 100%. They played better. Um, they ran the ball exceptionally well. Harris became a factor in the run game. And, uh, yeah, they didn't stop the run, but – they put themselves in position to win the game and then make the crucial error down the wire. I still, I still have yet to see Cam Newton throw the ball down the field though. I mean, he threw, he threw some medium range balls this, this week, hit those 15 to 20 yard shots, but nothing that is aired out and stretching the coverage, not even to throw one over everyone's head and say back off. Doug, I believe that the NFL defines an explosive pass play as 20 yards or more down the field. I think it's 20 is the threshold. Patriots are dead last in the NFL on that. They have 15 passes of that variety this year. Patrick Mahomes had five passes of 25 yards just yesterday alone. Yeah, I was you know checking out the, the 
the Jets game, and Mahomes hit a beautiful corner route. He hit a, a beautiful uh, post route for a touchdown. And what was the third one? Uh, maybe it was just a go route over the top, but at least three big time throws over the top for touchdowns. It's unbelievable. Just that, you know, that that's what you said weeks ago. Lack of explosiveness is the thing that the Patriots have. I want to kind of ask you this first and foremost, though. No fans yesterday in Buffalo. I got to ask you, because we haven't really talked about this. Can you imagine playing a game with no fans? It's really going to – that's got to be weird. That's got to feel – and I, I, I heard Belichick say this early on um, when someone asked him about you know the no fan thing. It's like a practice. It's like a every day in practice in a scrim, especially when you have during training camp, you always had these major scrimmages on a Sunday morning. And it was the first time that you were lining up and going live and it felt like a game to you. Yeah. But you go out there and you can still hear all the coaches from the sideline. <clears throat> the communication between players is so easy and there's no crowd noise and all that. So you bring your own energy. It's got to really, I mean, at least when we're watching it on TV, we hear the fake crowd noise pumped in. It makes us feel like it's kind of normal. It is not. There's no way it's normal for those guys at all. You mentioned that Evan Washburn was on the CBS broadcast team yesterday um, as we taped this on Monday night. He was the sideline reporter. He came on my radio show earlier today. And I asked him, what's it like? Because, again, we hear the fake crowd noise. What's it like being there? Aaron, let's hear what Evan Washburn said about what it's actually like with no fans. Absolutely eerie. Uh, I've come up with multiple descriptions for it. Uh, it feels like we're producing a commercial because everyone's in their full garb, but there's no atmosphere around it. Uh, the best way I've sort of heard it described actually by uh, my teammate, Ian Eagle, no longer when there's no fans, are you necessarily covering or broadcasting an event? It's a game. It's, it's strictly a game. You know, and you played in Buffalo, and the Bills Mafia is notoriously known as some of the rowdiest fans in the NFL. What were they like when you were playing in Buffalo? Oh, it was amazing. It was. I went up last year. I went up last year for a game, first game I'd been back, and I kind of did an intro thing just before kickoff, and the place goes nuts. They've come to their feet. They're, they're singing together. They're cheering together. People go to the parking lot <laughs> on a home game. They go to the parking lot. On Wednesday night, it's like a four or five day vacation. We're coming out of practice on a Wednesday. There's RVs in the parking lot already. These people wow. have nothing else going on but the Bills game on Sunday, and they live for it. They're, it could be snowing and blizzard conditions, so they're ripping their shirts off and got a fire around the barrel, you know? <laughs> it's just, it really was a cool experience playing in Buffalo. I mean, you know, Pats fans, everyone thinks their fans are diehard. But they don't have a lot, lot of other things going on up in Buffalo. They live for the Bills. What was it like in the 80s with the Patriots? We know about the Patriots fans now. What were 80s Patriots fans like before the team they, got good? They were used to losing. <laughs> and, and uh, well, when I, got, when I started playing, we actually had a little winning streak, and they got really fired up, and there was enthusiasm about it. But it was the old Sullivan Stadium. So it's mm -hmm. an open stadium, two side, the sides straight down, open corners and end zone seats. So the wind just howled through there and it was a cold place. And people, 
love to bring their alcoholic beverages and hide them and sneak them and bring them into the stadium to try to keep themselves warm. And at halftime, they'd run up into the concourse, into the bathroom areas to try to get warm. It was, um, it was a tough stadium from a NFL standpoint. To me, it was big time. To me, you know, that's all I knew. Uh, but uh, it, they were they were diehard fans. They were Boston fans. They loved us when we won. They hated us when we lost. And that's just the way it was. You know, they wanted to win so bad. And I was fortunate enough that being a Boston area guy, they were really behind me. And I actually got on the field and we started winning. And it was fun for a while. I'm a baseball guy at heart. To me, when you say Boston, I instantly think Red Sox. To me, it's always Red Sox are number one. Now everyone else will tell you the Patriots are number one. When you were playing there in the 80s, where did you think the Patriots ranked? Were they four of four? Uh, you know, the Red Sox still haven't won a World Series in forever. Yep, true. Uh, they were so close in 86. Um the Bruins and Celtics were always in the mix for a championship. Mm -hmm. So they had the headlines and we were second fiddle. The Red Sox were popular, but they weren't, you know, winning at all. So at that time, I think the Celtics were number one. Um, and the Patriots, I mean, that's, you know, pro football in the area. I mean, all of New England is still going to back the Patriots and they love their pro football. But we were definitely at least number three, if not number four on the list at that time. You know, we talk about the piped-in crowd noise. I, I like it. I think it does bring in a semblance of normalcy. And really, look, I got a weak stomach. The last thing I want to hear is a bone-crushing hit and hear a scream after a guy blows out an ACL. I mean, like, did you want to hear it be just the game, or do you like the piped-in noise? Um, I kind of liked it. I, the piped in noise started for me with the Red Sox game. So it was the first mm -hmm. exposure we had to pro sports. And I, and I realized it right away. This is an important job. This yeah. individual that's pushing the sound effects buttons, the boo button when he throws over to first or <laughs> on a bad call or a close call, the home crowd booing or cheering and, and the way you, it really affects the viewing of a game and the way that the, the in-home experience of watching it on TV. So I think it's very important. And I think there should be multiple people involved in that, like multiple sound effects that really make for this season. Anyway, it's a big part of the game. It's a big part of the viewing it at home part of the game at the stadium. You don't hear that. And I just, you know, from an offensive standpoint, though, playing on the road, even at home, it would be easier. The communication, like all of a sudden you have the wrong personnel on the field or you have, a bad formation, a coach can yell out to a receiver, hey, you're on the line of scrimmage, back off the line, you're ineligible. Do th they can yell that from 30, 40 yards away, and the players are going to hear them. Things can get corrected with the way things are right now. Do you think you have to change up things like your audible calls every week? Because now, I mean, things are more audible on film, I would imagine, to opposing teams. Do you have to change up some of that in-game stuff? I, I, I think so. Because you – the Patriots used to go back and watch video of games of, of the game film and hear the audio and match it up with the plays on their regular game film and pick up audibles. Hmm. And, you know, teams had to change. You, you started back when I was playing, we never changed. We, we never changed hand signals. We never changed audibles, but guys, it became there's so much going on now over the line of scrimmage 
that these hand signals and audibles are happening on every play. And now you definitely, with, with no crowd noise, you definitely have to change it up. You might even change it up from first half to second half. As a guy who played on other teams, let me ask you this question. I've always wondered, what happens to the playbook when you get released, get traded, get cut, signed somewhere else? Like, Because if I went to a different team, I'd think, hey, I know they do this on third down and this play means that. I'd be, I'd be writing everything down and I'd be telling my new team. How much does that happen in the NFL? I'm in the wrong room. I, I, <laughs> I'm in the wrong room now. I had them at my fingertips. Um, you're supposed to turn the playbook in. It's the, 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 the dire line is uh, coach wants to see you bring your playbook. Yeah. Okay. That means you're getting cut. Um, I've got all my playbooks. <laughs> <laughs> I save, I, I assumed I'd end up getting into coaching some, and you know what? I could hand another team a playbook. They all, they all, we all run the same plays. We all have some little tricks off of them and some, but terminology there's no defensive player is going to learn the offensive terminology. You're not going to hear it anyway. Hmm. And you're not going to hear it in the huddle. You may hear an audible at the line of scrimmage and the audibles change from week to week. Um, so having a, now here's the other thing teams used to, you know, you have your top 12 plays, you you script your first 10 plays, 12 plays. Uh, you have a, a little game plan for that week, not your big playbook, but a game plan for that week. Guys accidentally leave those in locker rooms after the yeah. fact. You're supposed to turn those into your coaches before the game. Some guys throw them out. Some guys leave them. And opposing teams will – the home team will go through trash cans and look <laughs> for that stuff because that's important because the next time you play each other, they know uh, what you're looking to take advantage of, the types of things you're trying to do. So teams will look for that stuff. You throw that stuff away. You turn that stuff. You don't throw it away in the locker room. You turn that stuff back into your coaches. So we always hear, you know, a guy gets signed, gets released, and then the team sign, you know, a team signs him later in the year. Well, James Harrison used to play for Pittsburgh, so the Patriots signed him because now he can tell them everything about Pittsburgh. That's not really a reality. That's it's not a reality, but he can tell you uh, personnel things. You know, who's the weak link in the O line? You know, who's the weak link in the O line? Who's not a good cover guy? Why is this guy struggling? Is this guy, no, we can take advantage of this or that. Those types of things they can tell you. Um, I remember I was with uh, Chicago with the Bears, got traded, came to New England, and we played the Bears the following year, and the coaches were grilling me on personnel. You know, and that was, it's like, you know what? I don't know. We ran this against this guy. I remember yeah, it just, and I spent three years in San Diego. I came to the Patriots at the end and we're playing San Diego. There were a couple things that I kind of hinted to or told the coaches about pass protections and what, what we'd like to do in San Diego as far as max protecting and doing this or, or what we call scanning protection, crossing over and picking up a blitz. Some of that stuff carries over, but um, there's very little that you could bring that, that you're going to really take advantage of. Patriots lose to the Bills 24-21. They're now 2-5. and five. First four-game losing streak since 2002. Aaron, let's get to the overall takeaways. Overall takeaways. Number one. All right, Doug. I'm in the minority on this so far in the media mob. I had zero problem with the Patriots onside kicking 
at 14-14 yesterday. They've just come down to score. Jacoby Myers gets the two-point conversion. They've got the momentum. They try the onside kick. They don't get it. Everyone crushes them. Buffalo goes down and scores. I'm actually okay with it. This is a desperate team that finally played with some urgency. Desperate teams do different, desperate things. I appreciated the fact that they took a chance finally and didn't play it so close to the vest. I had no problem with it. What did you think? I had no problem with it either. I like taking some risk here and there, trying to do something that's a little unorthodox or out of the ordinary and take a shot at it. I love that. Of course, they're, they're second-guessing. You know, if, if the Patriots recovered, it's the greatest move in history. You know, oh, Bill Belichick's so smart. <laughs> Anybody can second-guess. Put yourself in the position before the kick. They obviously saw something during the week. It was a great recovery by um, – I don't even remember who recovered the ball. But so many times, as a kicker approaches the ball, the front line starts to retreat and going for their – area to get to their responsibility obviously they saw on film these guys start backpedaling a little early let's take a shot at a surprise onside kick he reacted up quickly got to the ball made a nice recovery recovered the ball you know that, that happens i like the risk you go for it um i'm a firm believer my my attitude has always been the team that runs its trick play first in a game wins Whoever decides to try a trick play or be aggressive, it means, number one, you're being aggressive. Number two, you're relaxed and you're playing free and you're playing easy and you're going after it. I love that that type of thing. Okay, it turned into Buffalo got a short field and they made the best of it, took it down and stuck it in the end zone. You still had a chance at the end of the game to come back and win. And that's not why you lost the game. You lost the game because you fumbled the ball at the end of the game. People are so upset about this play call. I'm like, if you're going to be mad at something, be mad at the fact that the Patriots now can't tackle. I mean, 19 missed tackles in the last two games. The first Buffalo drive of the second half, they came down and the Patriots were just playing uh, Matador defense out there. I mean, I'd be more mad at that than I would be at the call. Yeah, the frustrating part was seeing Buffalo run the ball as easily as they did. And a perfect example of coaches' frustration. Uh, I believe it was third and goal. Josh Allen runs a quarterback throw from about the three-yard line and scores. Yep. All right. He got in pretty easily, stepped over a player, fell into the end zone. First of all, you don't run a quarterback draw when there's a five-man line. There were three down linemen, two guys up on the edge. So it's a five-man front for the Patriots. It's five-on-five blocking. Quarterback draw is very tough. You're probably going to get man coverage with a five-man front. You should throw the ball. Not only that, New England blitzed off the corner to bring a sixth guy. Now you got six defenders versus five blockers. Every gap is covered. Everybody keep your gap leverage, and there's no way he scores. Simon, the, the, the blitz came off the offensive right, the defensive left. He's the free rusher. The inside guy to him is Simon, and he should take the inside shoulder of the tackle and protect the guard tackle gap and keep his right arm free. It just that's his gap. He got squared up, ended up getting leveraged a little bit, and there was a little bit of a crease. And that's where Josh Allen slipped through. Even though there was an unblocked player, all he had to do was go to the inside leverage, and the play can go nowhere. And that, from a coaching standpoint, is the most frustrating thing in the world. You've called a good defense. You should have shut that play down, should have held him to a field goal. Instead, you allow a quarterback to, to score five against six. I got a question for you. 
one of my good buddies is a Patriot fan. He texted me during the game. He said he hated the onside kick call. I said what we said. I loved it because I love the aggressiveness. And he asked a question that I said, this is a great question. I have to bring it to Flutie. Why were they so aggressive on the onside kick, but so passive at the end of the first half, kicking on third down instead of giving them a chance to score a touchdown? And why so passive on third and long all the time? Um, the, the field goal at the end was because of out of timeouts. And you're probably not going to score a touchdown anyway from there. So instead of risking a play, a 10-second runoff on a penalty, uh, anything like that, the conservative move kicked the field goal, and I had no, I had no issue with that. The other conservative plays, you know, calling the draws on third down. I think once the Patriots busted one and got a first down. Yeah. What's happening is the Bills were going six and seven defensive backs. When they had seven defensive backs on the field, you should be able to block that. You should be able to secure the front, get up a guard or a tackle on a little guy in the and and make the blocks up the field. And they got stuffed like three or four times trying to run the ball in third and medium, say third and four to seven situations, when the Patriots had the advantage in the in the numbers game and in the body count. The bodies were big versus little. They were DBs on the field. They should be able to block that. And they didn't secure it at the line of scrimmage. It wasn't clean and they get stuffed. So that's that's coaching. You know, you're looking at it. You're saying this is what this is a game plan move this week. We see nickel, or I mean, we see dime or quarter, six or seven DBs. We're going to try to run the ball in that middle that middle yardage area, and it, it backfired. They got stuffed a couple more than once. They got stuffed three times, I believe, yeah. three or four. And uh, you know, there's really no excuse for that. That's a man on man where you've got the advantage and you let it get away. So you're telling me the third and 10 draw play is not just a give up play that actually has a purpose that can work? Absolutely. If you see, if you see what we call uh, too deep man under, we call it 55 in nickel situation. So it's, it's man to man underneath with two deep safeties. You can okay. take your receivers and run out breaking routes and run every defensive back and every linebacker out to the boundary and okay. slip a draw in and just block five against four and be into the secondary. And if you see that look, if you see certain looks like that, you will audible to a run and hope you crease it. Now, third and 12, you know, you got to hit it clean and get through and then maybe even make a safety miss because the safeties will react up. But they weren't even getting through the line of scrimmage clean when they had the numbers. And that's, that's what's got to be frustrating from a coaching standpoint. Cam Newton, 8 of 13 on play action, 95 yards on play action, got more than half his yards from play action. That's what you've been calling for. What exactly are you looking for as a quarterback when you use a play fake? Okay, well, with Cam at quarterback, the quarterback run is a huge threat. The play action fakes aren't just either run or pass. It's, it's handed off or quarterback run. So mm-hmm. now even the unblocked guy at the end of the line of scrimmage is a little hesitant. And he's watching. Safeties have to get involved. When, when the quarterback is a true runner like Cam is, and as much as they ran him, the safeties have to come up and fill, fill the alleys and be a part of the run game. So now when you go play action or hard play action, they've got to step up. Receivers are more likely to be one-on-one on the outside, sometimes without safety help. 
and you have an opportunity for big plays. A lot of what Cam's doing on his play actions have been kind of bootleg action, fake, get on the perimeter and throw the short dump ball or the short mm-hmm. crosser. It's not really down the field shot play action stuff. So it it's great. I love play action because it occupies the defensive line, gives the quarterback more time. It gives receivers more time to work their routes and the quarterback with the ball in his hand, more time to allow them to work. Um, I was, because of my height, very, if, if I had to do a straight drop back and wait for something to develop way down the field, like a double move or a long, something long cross, deep crosser, the defensive line would start to get in my face and it, I'd look like I'm thrown out of a whale. Well, when you do the play action stuff, it moves you around a little bit, occupies them, and now you're much better separation from the line of scrimmage and your receivers are down the field. Aaron, let's get to what are they saying. Let's see. I got one. I, a couple I want to play for Doug specifically. Sometimes people say stupid things. I said, how do I want Patriot games to go? For Cam to play great and they lose an heartbreak. Yeah, check and it. check. Everything came up, Nick, right you this week. Sometimes people say smart things. But it works. I thought Cam was accurate. I thought he made really good decisions. They played to his strengths. Locally, regionally, nationally. Here's what they're saying about your New England Patriots. All right, Doug, uh, Ted Johnson, NBC Sports Boston, former Patriots linebacker, says Damian Harris needs to become a focal point of the offense. I guess one of my biggest takeaways is that Sony Michelle is pretty much done in New England. He, they're not going to exercise his fifth-year option. And evidently running backs are a dime a dozen. So Damian Harris becomes a bigger part of the team, and Sony Michelle is, is not here beyond year four. Yeah, I, it's, it's amazing how that happens. Um, and, and I think Bill, Bill Belichick said it years ago. He wasn't going to take a top-round draft choice and use it on a running back. He thinks he can get those guys that are going to be able to contribute in lower rounds. And I agree. Harris looked great. He, he was breaking tackles. He was hitting the hole with conviction and running hard. Um, the, you know, I, I'm a big Burkhead fan because he's always getting positive yards and always yeah. going downhill forward. But it seems like Harris is a lot more explosive. And – so much of the running back position is being a viable option in the pass game as well because of the threats that you can have. And uh, if they're not afraid of you running routes, it's going to be a lot tougher to just hand the ball off to them. But it, it definitely looked that way to me too. That Harris has to be a bigger part of the run game. He's got an elusiveness. He's got power. He's got some breakaway speed. So Michelle doesn't seem to have that. I don't know what happened between him at Georgia and him with the Patriots, but he just looked like a one-cut, no-burst runner. I don't quite get it. Yeah, he seems like more of a physical-type runner that would – that um, you know, the, actually the job that Burkhead's doing, get north and south, get your five or six yards, you know, and that's not what we thought we were getting with him. We thought that was – going to be more of an explosive situation and a guy that's taken up. Not that I'm a part of the organization saying we. Um, just from an observer standpoint, I think of Sonny Michelle from his college years of being a lot more explosive. Um, and, you know, are the holes not there? I don't know. Well, Harris seemed to find, um, find some windows of opportunity to bust into the secondary. A lot of times, running back is conviction of just being determined and anticipating something and going hard at it instead of being hesitant. One of the biggest sports changes in my life is the devaluing of the running back. Like I used to think 
you know, like if you got Ricky Waters in the nineties, you played with Ladanian Tomlinson. I'm like, great running back. That's the foundational piece of your team. And now it's like, oh, seventh rounder, undrafted. It doesn't matter who it is. I my biggest criteria for a running back is can he catch the ball? Can he run an angle route, a flat route, a swing route, and screens and catch the ball? Now, if you got a guy, I was so fortunate to play with Walter Payton, Thurman Thomas, LaDainian Tomlinson, guys that could actually run real routes downfield yeah. as well that, that just made that position so dangerous. And then, of course, they were natural runners with the ball. They're, that's why they're running backs. That's why they were drafted. They're in that position because, yes, they can carry the ball. They can make people miss and do things. Uh, as a young back, the first thing they got to learn is pass protections. They can't step on the field until they can pass protect. My way of guys that were kind of a little undersized was free release them, make them cover him, get him out in the route. I'll deal with the hot. I didn't, I didn't like my tailback having to stick, stick his nose in there all the time on those big linebackers running at him. But that was a big part to me was because those are the guys that get your matchups. You, you need a guy that can run with the ball on, you know, under his arm. He's going to make people miss and go, but you need him to be able to run routes and be an effective pass catcher because he's going to have some good matchups. You know, the Patriots running back is their best position. I've just said, hey, let's put all two running backs in the field at the same time. Whatever happened to the split back formation? We used to see that in the 90s where the quarterback would be there. He'd have a running back on each side of him. They don't do that anymore. What happened to that formation? Well, split backs, split backs are primarily a pass formation. Um, Because they're split, they're in a position to pick up the outside linebackers. What that's become, the only time you see split backs now is when the, sh- the shotgun formation and the back's next to them and the tight end motions into the backfield. That's basically yes. split back. But the running game out of that was horrible. And it always has been. And they basically don't run the ball out of split backs anymore because it takes too long. You love the downhill running from the eye. You like the depth of a tailback to be able to run. And that's, that's the difference. The only time you see split backs is third down situation, the tight end motions of the backfield. you got two guys in there for pass protection. So do people not run it because pass protection for the running backs is too hard? You don't want to put both of them back there and, and, and force them to do it? Because it just seems like a good way to creatively use your assets, but I, I still don't know exactly why um, the Patriots wouldn't do it. There's no – when you run the ball from split backs – You've got to run – something's got to be going laterally. And it takes too long. There's no vision for the backs. They're too close to the line of screen. The eye back, the depth, and taking the handoff at depth allows him the vision and a lot of the zone blocking now. Um, from split backs, you could run a trap. From split backs, we run like a power sweep. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was primarily a, a pass formation back in the old days. Now – what we used to call pro set split backs, meaning they're on either side of the quarterback pro set was take the fullback, put them behind the quarterback and the tailback weak side. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you could release the back weak side and bring the fullback weak for pass protection. So they both go to the same side. Uh, but even there we ran the ball. You had to run it weak. It was, it, I don't know. It's kind of been outdated and, and the shotgun has changed all of that. When I played Madden 1999 split backs was the best formation. <laughs> I was, trust me. I come from a era. We co- split backs was called red, red right, red left. The split backs. Brown was when they got behind the quarterback, um, 
and you could call a play. So we usually go red, right, 64. 60 would be a weak side protection. Four would be a curl route, and everybody knew what they were doing. Hmm. Plays aren't that simple anymore. It's tip to queen left, slot, close, zip, back four, seven, six, zero, F shoot, sneak, half back screen, right. And then you add a second play call on top of that, and it's check with me. It just, it's, it used to be so simple. Red, right, 64. You know, I'm going to try something different here for Aaron as we play this cut. So, um, Aaron, play me the Rex Ryan cut for a second. I think Bill Belichick, the GM, maybe he doesn't have that title, uh, deserves a lot of the blame. And, and the reason for it is this team, when Tom Brady walked out the door, people never realized that kind of impact. Tom Brady wasn't done as a quarterback. We're seeing it in the way he plays in Tampa. But we're also seeing his impact here. This team is short on, on weapons. Okay, Doug, did you hear that? Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, so this one's really complex, right? Like the team hasn't drafted well. That's on Belichick because he's kind of the de facto GM. They haven't really worked out their trades well either. And now the salary cap's caught up to them. I, it can't all be Belichick's fault. Some of it's injury, some of it's bad luck. But does Bill need to give up control of roster building? It feels too hard to be the GM and the head coach, and that's why so few people do it. He's won. But at this point of his career, it kind of feels like maybe it would be best to give it up. But I don't know they'd ever see that control. You know, nobody was saying that when he's winning Super Bowls. Right. So you're saying at this point in his career, maybe it's a lot. And it's always been a lot. Bill's a workaholic. He's always been that way. He's always been hands-on. There is a salary cap in the NFL. Things work in cycles. I, I agree with the fact – I couldn't believe Tom Brady got away. That, to me – um, and I don't know if the reason is that Tom wanted to go prove something else or if the organization was really giving up on Tom at his age and time to move on. Um, but I really felt Tom still – Tom. all Tom needed was his head and his arm, and he's still going to be successful. So I, I, the giving up on Tom, I think, was the mistake. But you do run into salary cap. I don't think the Patriots have ever been ridiculously explosive at their skill position spots offensively. And Tom yeah. made that difference. I think they built defense. They This year now you're running into, I mean, Edelman didn't dress. Harry didn't dress. Um, you know, they had guys down. They've had the offensive line bagged up, even though this week they felt pretty secure about what they had up front. Um, you know, those things play into it. A first-year quarterback with your team. It's a completely different team. It's a completely different situation because at all, if, if things weren't working, Tom would go empty, no huddle, and throw the ball on every down, and the ball would be out of his hand. It would be a, like a surgeon, five-yard, eight-yard route, five-yard, eight-yard route, five-yard, eight, bang, touchdown. And that, you can't, you can't put a price tag on that. And that's, that's Tom. That's who he is. I, I've probably told the story before about we were playing in Pittsburgh and he took the team on his back when we were getting our butts kicked up front. He completed his last 11 passes, two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and we win the game. It's just there are some special guys out there, and Tom is one of them. You know, I understand the the Bill Parcells line. If they want me to cook the meal, the least they could do is let me shop for the groceries. But at almost 70 years old, I don't – you know, I don't know if Bill can do it at a high level and do everything. Even high-level college recruiters give up the recruiting at some point towards the end of their career. So, 
Um, I understand yep. why Belichick wants to, but should he have to? I, you know, I'm not going to make that decision for him. It, it's Bill's work ethic, and I've always seen it that he's he's nonstop, and his forte was no stone left unturned. His watching a film, his game planning, meticulous about uh, the opposing player personnel and evaluation. As far as the GM aspect of it and, and who he's drafting and what, how he approaches that, you know, I, I've never really seen that end of it. Um, I know that they've been successful. Um, you know, you can say that certain draft cho- choices have not worked out. If he wants to relinquish it, I think it should be up to Bill. With the success that he has had, I think it's, it's totally up to – if he doesn't want to work that hard, if he doesn't want to do it, that's one thing. If he wants to do it, I can understand that he wants to be a part of his own success in coaching and have a, have a say in the drafting of players. Um, and, you know, the organization ultimately has that say. Does Bill Kraft still have the confidence in him? I, 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 Bob Kraft, I'm, I'm sure he still does. Aaron, let's get to this makes me want to drink as we wrap it up. The weekend is over. I thought it was time to stop drinking. I'm kind of beat. Yeah. yeah. Thank God I'm exhausted. But this makes me want to drink. I just can't. I need a drink. Give me a drink. All right, Doug. The Patriots ran a play yesterday that is my least favorite play in the NFL. Tell me what purpose the toss play to the short side of the field works. I mean, my God. Even I know when I play a Madden video game or a college football video game, hey, if the whole side of the field on that side is open, that's where I'm running the toss play. Toss play to the short side of the field does you no good. The boundary adds another defender there, and it always ends up with a loss for yards or two yards, and the guy runs out of bounds. Zero, worst play in football is the short side of the field toss. Why do people do this? All right, so you're in a formation. You put your wide receiver, your X receiver on the line of scrimmage to the field, your tight ends into the boundary, you motion your guy across, and they run with him. Strong safety switches strength. Strength comes down to the wide side of the field now. You've switched strength from weak side to strong. Now the strength of the defense is to the wide side of the field. Now you Mm -hmm. want to pitch the ball weak side because you have a one-man advantage. And that dictates where you go with the call. Yes, if the strong side, if that linebacker or the contained player on that side does a good job of getting up the field and containing at the same time, it gets narrow real quick over there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. Sometimes, yeah, it looks penetration kills you. A lot of times if the strength of the defense is over there to the wide side, the front is now slanting to the weak side, which makes it tough. So um, I'd have to take a look at the call that we're talking about and see if they ran into leverage. You know, if you send a guy across in motion and the strong safety stays on that side of the field, there's an extra defender over there, and then you pitch the ball into it, you know, you're asking for a loss. So a lot of times it has to do with fronts. It has to do with strength of the secondary rotating. Um, yeah, I hear you. There's some plays that look that, that looked at my, hey, my, my worst play in football is short yardage. I hate, let's bring three tight ends in. Let's bring an extra yeah. full, let's, let's load the box here. We got 12 guys playing in a phone booth. So they're going to, they're going to line up their 11 guys in the phone booth too. And we're all just going to mash it. It's like, screw that spread out, get them to cover the whole field. 
You guys get all the way out there. You guys get all the way out there. Let's do a quarterback sneak. You know what? There's going to be a gap open, and Tom Brady was the best at it. You spread them out, run a normal formation. They leave a gap open. Tom would sneak it into the gap and get a two-yard gain, and we're moving the chains. Um, why bring more people to the party and get all in there and have to block somebody else? I, I hated that. I was going to ask you about running out of spread versus running out of tight formations because the Patriots seem to run out of a lot of tight formations yesterday. I've heard people say it's easier to run when you spread everybody out. What's the advantage of running out of spread versus running out of a tight formation? Spreading people out simplifies the box. It, it cuts down the numbers. There's only so many looks, and the numbers are easy. We can either block all of them or we can't block all of them. And mm-hmm. then – uh, when you have when you add extra tight ends in there, things become cluttered. There's extra people. The guy's covering a tight end to be in his face and jamming them and then still playing run. When they're spread out there, he's got to go cover them. He's got to go cover them. They're basically blocking a guy by going out and lining up wide. When I was in the Canadian League, all our short yardage plays were empty set. You guys spread out. I'm calling a quarterback sneak. Mm-hmm. And there's always there would always be an open gap somewhere. And I'd hit it between the guard and tackle, between the center and guard, wherever. The only way to take that gap away is bring the safety out of the middle and bring them into a gap. Now they're risking everything. You check to a pass, it splits coverage, a guy, you hit a home run. So that was always my way to do it. And the, the run game in the Canadian game, because you were always spread out like that, was very simplified. Because you'd either have four down linemen and a linebacker or four down linemen and two linebackers. There's two linebackers in there, we're throwing the ball. And, and that it simplifies things and you have to block less people. The only problem is the edge. The outside edge is shorter into the backfield. A guy coming off the edge could potentially uh, tackle someone for a loss. The other one, I'm not going to do it justice on trying to describe it properly, but the Patriots like five times yesterday, both runs and passes ran this weird play fake where Cam would take the snap and like look left and then kind of spin around and give the ball right. I can't even properly describe it, but he'd take the snap, he'd like go this way, and then turn around and hand it over here. I'm like, what is this weird slow-developing play fake? You're tr- it, to me, what I think you're describing is you're trying to get the defense to flow a certain direction. The back is in a position where potentially he could have gone left too, takes a counter step and goes back, but the handoff is over the top. Um it's amazing how on a chalkboard things look good on a chalkboard, yeah. on a grease board. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they don't always translate. Uh, the, the only thing, you know, I, I saw your notes on that and I was thinking maybe we were talking about a situation where you go for a play action fake, but the, and you'll see this many times, the quarterback turns to play action and the back goes to the other side. Yeah. So then the quarterback drop it. Because the back has to sometimes scan the secondary to see for most dangerous. Okay. Is this guy going to blitz or is that guy going to blitz? And all of a sudden the back has to blow off the fake and go get his guy. But um, sometimes you try to give a little counteraction where you make it look like it's going one day, one way and then hand it back over the top to hopefully get the linebacker to step. One step is all you need for the uncovered lineman to come off a guy and seal him and get and reach that middle linebacker. If the middle linebacker flows right away to the play side, the uncovered lineman can't get there in time. So you try to get him to counter step. 
I'll end it on this. I got to give Josh McDaniels credit. Finally, I saw a cool play from the Patriots. It was Patriots were in shotgun. Cam had Damian Harris to his right. He faked the toss to the right and then threw a backside slant to the only receiver on the left side. That was a cool play. That was imaginative. If that was Seattle, DK Metcalf takes it 65 yards to the house. But because it's the Patriots, it goes for seven yards. But, hey, at least it looked good, and it was an original concept. I like yeah, it. Yeah, and it was wide open. Too. With that action yeah. of faking the pitch, linebackers flow. There was absolutely nothing left underneath the slant. So the slant's one-on-one. He comes under. Bang, he hit the slant. It was an easy completion. And you're right. You know, the explosive player at wide receiver might take that on the run and, and, and make a big play out of it. Um, it's, it's funny in a day and age where everything is X and O and drawn up and there's so many intricate reads. And then sometimes you can just get people flowing one way and throw a route one-on-one, you know, it's, it's, it's that simple sometimes. And I loved trying to simplify the game, trying to make it that, you know, Hey, get open. I'll throw you the ball. <laughs> and sometimes we overthink things. Well, that was a cool play. Patriots still didn't win the game, but hey, at least I don't have to be as mad at Josh McDaniels today. But uh, Aaron Wells, our producer, Doug Flutie, former Patriots quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner with us. As always, I'm Brady Farkas. We'll be back later in the week getting you ready for Monday Night Football against the winless Jets. This one feels like it might be a Patriots win, but uh, hey, forget politics. We're the election night coverage you should be listening to, so uh, go Pats, everybody. So we'll see you again. Doug, Aaron, thank you. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.